Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm therefore having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so Paul's depiction of the armor of God it is a summary of his gospel with the focus here on taking it up and doing it. So in this summary, he actually goes back, and I'll touch upon this. He's going back through the gospel as he's presented it in Ephesians, and he's just repeating it. He's using the same vocabulary in a kind of an imperative sense. Last week, we discussed the notion of imitating Christ. Paul says, imitate God and imitate Christ. And I believe here is the practical means. Here is the understanding of how we do that. Here is the way in which we take up salvation. And so we talked about living as Christ lived, putting on the faith of Christ, walking as Christ walked, taking up the cross and following Jesus are all means of imitating Christ. And Paul's own depiction of imitation, I believe, is here. Here is the way you fulfill his picture of imitating Christ. You put on the full armor of God. He uses other illustrations and other places. Put on Christ. Put on the full clothing of Christ. I believe this is Paul's depiction of how to take up the gospel. How it works. How it is enacted in the life of the believer. And this depiction of the armor, I think it's unfortunately taken, oh, here is a nice illustration. It makes for kind of a great sermonizing. 
But it is often not considered as central to the gospel. But I think this is. I think this is Paul's gospel. That is defeat of the powers and personal engagement in this defeat. To say nothing of the notion that Christ came to defeat evil. These are often displaced by theories of the atonement focused on deliverance from the wrath of God and limited to, you know, Luther's notion of imputed righteousness. None of which allows, I think, for primary focus on this personal engagement with evil and the defeat of evil. And so in this understanding, the gospel, it's more than just, uh, you know, a kind of effervescent or transcendent thing. Rather, it's depicting how the gospel weaponizes us when we bear it, when we wear it, with the capacity to engage and defeat evil. Here's the way we do battle with the powers. And what the early church and Paul considered, I think, the very heart of salvation, it may just get dismissed. Oh, here's a kind of fun allegory, more suited to children's courses than serious theologizing. So let me make four points here, kind of refuting that notion. And that is that in if Ephesians, I've argued throughout, along with the early church, the early church fathers such as Origen and many others, along with contemporary scholarship such as that of Douglas Campbell, if Ephesians is the center and summary of Paul's gospel, and then Ephesians 6 is a summary of all that Paul has said in Ephesians, then this encapsulates Paul's understanding of how the gospel works in its defeat of evil and how it brings about salvation. And throughout his description of the armor, Paul is appealing to former key points that he's made in his book. So I'll just give you a few of these examples. I don't want to wear you out, but I actually could go through every, nearly every word that he uses here. He's already used, but let me give you a few examples. So in 6.10, he talks about the strength of the Lord or the strength of his might. But he's already defined what the power of God is, his strength is, in 1.19, in connection with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He says in 4.24, a very similar phrase to what he's saying here, he says, put on the new self. Here he says, put on the full armor of God. And he'll often use this language of putting on Christ. He's already talked about, you know, in 6.11 he talks about the schemes of the devil, but in 4.14 he talks about deceitful schemes. And he's warned, give no opportunity in 4.27 to the devil. And actually he's already defined, you know, the first three pieces of the armor here. Peace, truth, righteousness. He's defined earlier, these are Christ. Christ is the truth. Christ brings us peace. Christ is God's righteousness. In 421, he says this directly, truth is equated with Jesus. In 424, he talks about, and 215, he talks about truth and righteousness 
are to be found in the one new man. And of course the one new man is the man Christ Jesus, that he embodies this new humanity. In 2.17, he describes Jesus as the original source of peace. He talks about the gospel of peace is Jesus. He talks about the defeat of the rulers and authorities. He's already explained this at 121. That Christ is the one who resurrected and descended is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. At 2.2 he talks about also the ruler of the power of the air. At 3.10 you know, he talks about the manifold wisdom of God. That this is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's an example. There, uh, that literally this could just be drawn out. That Paul is just summarizing his book here. But now he's saying do it. Take it up. There's a parallel text in Romans 13, 12 to 14, in which Paul urges Christians, he says, to put on the armor of light. And then he follows this up with the parallel. This is synonymous with put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is that the two things, putting on the armor, putting on Jesus, they're the same thing. He's encouraging us here, I think, to do what he's already said, to put on Christ. Putting on this armor is to put on Christ. And so this is Paul's gospel. Here is the very center, here is the very heart of salvation. And what we see about this salvation, it's very much involved in defeating evil, in defeating the powers. That's point one. The other points are shorter. Don't look worried there. Number two, I've kind of said this, and that is Paul's gospel is built upon resistance to evil. Walter Wink was a, a preacher and theologian of a previous generation. He calls this the third way. And this third way it's not non-resistance to evil. Clearly, what is being pictured in Romans 6, this is all about resisting evil. Jesus never teaches non-resistance to evil. Nor does he teach violent resistance to evil. But he teaches non-violent resistance to evil. And so Wink writes, Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. That is, we don't oppose evil with evil. We don't oppose violence with violence. We're not to let the opponent dictate the methods of the opposition, of our opposition. He's urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by a third way. And one that is at once assertive, that's what this imagery here is, put on this armor, yet nonviolent. And so Christ does not promote passive non-resistance, nor violent resistance, but there is a singular resolution to the problem of evil. Guess what we call that? The gospel. Number three, in Ephesians 6, you know, this passage, 10 to 19, 
Just as I said with imitation, imitation is salvation. I think Paul is describing salvation in this passage. What is salvation? It clearly defeats evil in the form of the powers of this world. And the only way these powers are defeated is through the means provided by God. The gospel, the armor of God. And so if we take Ephesians as a whole and then Ephesians 6 as a summary, as descriptive of this salvation, this means salvation is not as it's often depicted, oh, we're delivered from the anger of God. No, we're delivered from cosmic powers of evil, death, and the devil. The captivating power, the darkening power, the death-dealing power. That's not the power of God, but the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. He uses a very interesting word here, the cosmocrats, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This cosmic struggle, it's certainly not removed from the historical, the political, the earthly. And so too, as Christians, we engage these spiritual forces through their earthly manifestations. You know, ideologies, institutions, manifesting the various forms of these dark powers. We could call it nationalism, patriotism, fascism, racism, sexism, legalism. These constitute, I believe, the forces of darkness. There's really no mystery as to the power of evil. This power of death and violence, that's the coin of the realm of the kingdoms of darkness. And this is exactly what's undone by the gospel of peace through its truth and righteousness. And so the mode of salvation is really the key thing here. It is provided by God. Whose armor is this? Paul is echoing Old Testament passages. There are several Old Testament passages describing God's armor. In Isaiah, Israel's only hope is this armor of God. Isaiah 59, 16, And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. That is, God alone can accomplish this salvation, and it is his armor alone. And I think Paul is echoing that to say, ah, oh, yes, but this armor is given to us in the gospel. Why can only God save? You know, that's the question here. And the obvious answer is in Paul's depiction of the power of God, that he begins this passage, you know, saying, here is the power of God. He's explained that the power of God is given to us in 119 to 21 through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And Christ now reigns over the powers. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who, who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. Here is the final and full manifestation of God. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Here is the strength of the Lord. And this is the means that believers can appropriate this strength. Think of Christian baptism. We're raised up with Christ. Think of the communion that we participate in his defeat of death. We appropriate his strength. And I think this whole passage is about appropriating, you know, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might in 610. It's a reiteration of the opening of the letter of Ephesians. That is, it's through the gospel that God in Christ defeats death. And the powers, all of these powers depend upon death. And Christ is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly place. And this exaltation of Christ implies the disarming of all the cosmic powers. And this disarming power is to be appropriated. We're to do what Christ did. We appropriate this power in the defeat of evil. Number four, salvation involves a real world defeat of the principalities and powers in the life of the believer. What Christ did, we do. There's certainly, you know, in this picture of armor, there is a kind of implication of an army, that a whole army goes out armed in this way. But I think in this passage, the focus is on the individual soldier. So to state it most succinctly, to be saved is to be saved from the powers as outlined here. Here are the powers that will damn you, that will kill you, that will destroy you. And here's the way you defeat those powers. And so, you know, go through. It's inclusive of the helmet of salvation. It includes the head, the transformation of the thought. It includes the gospel of peace with which your feet are shod. That is, you're now taking action, but it's a different kind of action. It includes the heart, the breastplate, you know, of the individual. So the armor weaponizes the individual against the fiery darts of the evil one. We have a new plan of action. You know, our feet shod with the gospel of peace. We have a new world of thought. The head and mind are transformed by salvation. We have a new ethic and worldview, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. You know, the belt may be the centerpiece of this. The belt kind of holds up everything else. It girds up the whole outfit. And defeating the powers. I, I, I don't know that this is a full, you know, to defeat the powers it may not be a full explanation of salvation, but it's certainly synonymous with or synchronous with salvation. And certainly there's a positive side of the fullness of the gospel, but this is required. This fullness of the gospel counteracts, as Ephesians puts it, the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, an illustration an explanation of what we are up against. I think is part and parcel of why we misread this section of scripture. Why is this text often set aside? You know, we read it, we kind of have fun with it, and we don't see it as central. And I think simply Constantinianism, 
is a form of Christianity which has abandoned Christ's strategy as outlined here. And what Constantinianism does, it presumes, oh, we have a better method. And I believe today we are faced with a Constantinian Christianity that is itself perhaps one of the powers. So as you know, Constantine is the emperor. He becomes a Christian. He has a vision of the cross. And Christianity then goes from being a persecuted religion to being the official religion of Rome. And of course, this fundamentally changes the orientation about what is the meaning of history. You know, it was clear when Christians were persecuted, this marks the division between church and state. The church is the one persecuted, and the state is the one doing it. But Constantinianism proceeds in a very different way, as if the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus had not profoundly altered history and the way that power works in history. And it provides for the church a way of acting politically in history, which in, is not entirely determined by the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Constantinianism, you know, think of the vision of Constantine. It moves the sign of the cross from Golgotha to the battlefield. And the conquering sign of the cross, it no longer entails taking up the cross as an instrument of self-giving sacrifice, but it reinforces sacrificing one's enemies in war, in violence. So Constantinianism tempts Christians to not only disobey the commands of Jesus, but it tempts them, I believe, to renounce imitating God imitating Christ, putting on the full armor. That is, we exchange the armor of the state for the armor of the gospel. And there is an undoing of the church world distinction. Such that the church disappears. This is the way that John Howard Yoder has described it. Before Constantine, one knew as a fact of everyday experience that there was a believing Christian community. But one had to take it on faith that God was governing history. After Constantine, one had to believe without seeing that there was a community of believers. That is, Christians just became a, mass, a part of the mass of Roman citizens. And within this larger nominally Christian mass, you can't discern the church. But one knew for a fact that God was in control of history because he controls Rome. So prior to Constantine, you know, the persecuted, the martyred Christians, they were the mark of the church. They were the witness of the church. And I'm not saying that Constantine's ceasing of that is a bad thing, but unfortunately there's a dangerous element in it. So that with his embrace of Christianity, Romans were mostly Christians. You know, there were a few Jews and they allowed for that. And the church became an indistinct part of the masses. So that Augustine will talk about the invisible church. 
And Rome's rule in the name of Christ was interpreted as the arrival of the kingdom. Oh, look, Christ has taken over even Rome. And there's an interesting shift. You know, before Constantine, you could not be a Christian Roman soldier. Now, there were exceptions. But for the most part, that was an oxymoronic situation. But with Constantine's conversion and the development in Rome, it came about that every Roman soldier was required to be a Christian. And soldiering for Christ, as we have it pictured here in Ephesians 6, was sublated by literal killing, literal service to the state. And this ideology, of course, persists in Christendom. Such that Paul's illustration, I'm afraid, is now allegorized and spiritualized away. And so I think Constantinianism is a case and point of exactly what we're up against. We need the gospel armor to protect us from this sort of insidious ideology. We are surrounded by ideologies. We're surrounded by powers that would have us abandon the gospel. They're insidious and we need to be able to name them. And so Paul's picture of salvation through the defeat of the powers. I think it takes the perspective of the individual soldier. This soldier, he knows he has the resources of his Lord, who he knows is seated at the right hand of God. But he only sees the battle in a very limited way. You know, he's directly engaged. We are directly engaged in the warfare. And we really can't see how the battle is going. It's only the commander on high. It's only Christ who can survey the entire field of battle. And he alone understands how this battle is going to be won. And so one must trust that God is in control of history. I'm not sure that we can always discern that or that we can see that. We only have the immediate warfare in plain sight. And the temptation is to judge the methodology of the gospel as ineffective. A crucified Savior. What kind of method is that? One who reigns as Christ reigns through emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. What kind of power is that? And so the temptation is to replace the armor and the weaponry of the gospel with the sword of state. And so the canonic self-sacrificing power of the, the cross. You know, that's really what this armor is describing. The feet shod with the gospel of peace. The head protected by salvation. These are unlikely strategies for victory by the standards of the worldly power. So the soldier, we Christians, must have faith in the weapons of the gospel. We must have faith in our commander. And the danger is if we do not trust that we will abandon the gospel. And of course the final outcome is really only assured in the eschaton. Until then, we trust 
in our commander. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.